Good morning. My name is Pastor John. I'm the associate pastor here at East Shore. It's wonderful that you've joined us in worship this morning. Well, as you can tell from looking around the sanctuary, it looks a little different than if you were here last week. And if you go into any store or turn on every radio station, it will loudly proclaim to you that it is the most wonderful time of the year. And if you think back, when you were a kid, it, it kind of felt that way, that it was always wonderful. Because Christmas was a season of joy. There'd be parties, there would be time off from school, there would be fun with family, and of course, there were presents on Christmas Day. But even as an adult, there's often something special about this time of year. However, just because that's true, just because we recognize something special, that doesn't mean that our feelings are always merry and bright at Christmas time. Christmas, the holiday season, it's very hard for some people. And sometimes the happiness of the season is really what we're not feeling that year. And it's not that we're trying to be a Grinch or a Scrooge. Our life has been hard, and we're just struggling with having Christmas joy at that time. And if we feel that way, if we are more overwhelmed than overjoyed this Christmas, well, what should we do? Well, thinking about that, what we're going to do over the next two weeks is we're going to talk about what can give us hope in hard times. What can give us hope in hard times? And today, we're going to learn to draw hope from God's great faithfulness. Look at His great faithfulness in hard times. To do that, we're going to look at a very powerful but often overlooked book of the Bible. The passage we're looking at today is at one time bleak, but at the other hand, it's hopeful. It's depressed, but it's also full of joy. And if we let it, it will give us an even greater appreciation of the beauty of Scripture and the loveliness of our great God. So if you're not there already, please turn to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 33 today, and then we will look at the second half next week. So Lamentations, chapter 3. If you want to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on page 433 and 434. This passage right in the middle between the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So once you are there, Lamentations 3, I'd ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Lamentations chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 33. Starting in verse 1, this is the author writes, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, and though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my way with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys, into my chest, the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me 
with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Verse 19, remember my affliction and my wandering. The wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it, is bowed down within me. Verse 21, but, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. Verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. As we look at this difficult passage, may it remind us how important it is to see you, not only at Christmas, but every time of the year. As we look at these words, as we think about hard times in our lives, may you be our focus. May we see more of you every day. May you truly increase during this time. May our concerns and thoughts decrease. Lord, when it feels like you are against us, lead us to remember your great faithfulness. May your faithfulness and your presence give us hope. May we trust in you. And may we trust in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's talk about where we are in Scripture. We are in the book of Lamentations. A lamentation and a lament, they're not really words we use in 21st century life. A lament, it's a formal expression of grief or sorrow. It's a way for someone to communicate great loss. Now, in our English Bibles, this book, the book of Lamentations, it's surrounded by books of prophecy. It has Jeremiah just before it, Ezekiel after it. But this short book is really a book of Hebrew poetry. It's a short collection of five poems that are mourning the destruction of Jerusalem. And there's some debate about exactly when it happened, either 587 or 586 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, if you've been here at East Shore for the past few months, we've been studying through the book of Joshua. In Joshua, we talked about how God was bringing his people into the promised land. But the book also had warnings. The Israelites were warned that if they worshipped other gods, they would lose their new home. They would lose their land. Well, hundreds of years later, almost a thousand years later, that is exactly what happened. In August of 587 or 586 B.C., Jerusalem was plundered, it was burned, and destroyed. 
and most of the people who were left in the city were sent into exile. On that day, the Israelites lost their capital, their place of worship, and their country. And this book, the book of Lamentations, it's a response to that event. Now, in the book, you won't find an author listed, but it's traditionally assumed to be the prophet Jeremiah, which is why it pops up in our Bibles right after the book of Jeremiah. Elsewhere in the Bible, in the book of 2 Chronicles, Jeremiah is said that he wrote a lament. And we know from his book that he witnessed firsthand the destruction of Jerusalem. So it seems pretty safe to assume he was the author or at least very involved in writing this book. Now, like I said, there's five poems in this book, and of the five of them, four of them are acrostic poems, acrostic poems. That's when each line or each part of the poem begins with the next letter of the alphabet. This is a silly English one using our English alphabet to make a a little poem together. But this book that we're looking at was written in Hebrew. It was not written in English. And in Hebrew, there are only 22 letters in the alphabet. So that's why if you look at chapter 1 or chapter 2 or chapter 4, you'll see there are 22 verses. Each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Our passage, chapter 3, there are three verses before it moves on to the next letter. So 22 letters, three verses each. You'll see there's 66 verses in chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3 begin with the first letter, Aleph, and verses 4 through 6 begin with the second letter, Bet. If you want to try to look at the picture, in Hebrew you read right to left. So if you look at the very first three lines, there's something that looks like an X as the very first letter. That's actually Aleph, or their A, and then verses 4 through 6 have kind of an upside-down J with a dot in the middle. Well, that, that's Bet. That's their B. And so it goes on like that. Now, this week we're just talking about the first half of this chapter. So we're stopping just before the letter Lamed, which is similar to our L. So you can see kind of halfway through the alphabet. Now, when we look at it in English, we can't see this at all. We don't see these letters listed like that. It doesn't look like the alphabet to us because they have to translate us so we get the message. But just knowing that it is there in the original language, it helps us appreciate how much work went into crafting this beautiful poem. Someone spent a lot of time thinking about the best way to tie these letters together to make this structure. So clearly, Jeremiah is intending for us to take his message very seriously. And it is a serious topic. The first half of the passage talks about what it feels like when God is against you. When it feels like God is against you. When we were just reading it a few minutes ago, that first half was very hard to read because the author is going through serious pain and suffering. And you know, this isn't the only time Jeremiah would write something like this. In his book, the book of Jeremiah, the prophet wrote, cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? That's Jeremiah 20, verse 14 and 18. Jeremiah felt this way, as we read here and in his passage, because he had a very tough task to do. Of almost anybody in the Bible, Jeremiah is not the guy I would have wanted to switch lives with. He had to proclaim a message of God's judgment that was completely ignored by everyone who listened to him. He had to tell them that God said, stop sinning or else. And unfortunately, they chose the or else. And Jeremiah was there with them. He experienced God's judgment that he warned them about. 
It's kind of like a runaway train, and he's the conductor, and he's trying to pull the emergency brake, but the train has so much speed, it just keeps going, and Jeremiah was along for the ride. He tried to stop his brothers and sisters, but they continued to rebel, and he had to go along with them. So look at how he describes the situation in our passage. In verse 1, he says, he's a man who has seen affliction. He is under the rod of God's wrath and anger. This rod it's talking about was in a tool that an ancient shepherd would use to protect his sheep. But here, Jeremiah is feeling like God has turned the rod on his own people because of their sin. It's the exact opposite that we read in that very famous psalm, Psalm 23. The author says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you, for God is with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That psalmist felt like it was a comfort for him. And God's power is very comforting when we are with him, but it's terrifying when we are against him. Jeremiah then says that God has driven him from the light into places of darkness. The Lord's hand seems to be against him every day. And like how stress can make our hair gray, God's judgment is making the author's skin, his flesh, grow old and waste away. He feels besieged, enveloped, surrounded by bitterness, anguish, tribulation, hardship, and woe. He says in verse 6, his distress makes him feel more at home with the darkness of the long dead. The enemy armies destroy Jerusalem, but Jeremiah, he feels like he is being attacked by God. And so he switches to kind of a military metaphor, a military picture in verse 7. God's walled, hedged him in so he cannot escape, he cannot get out. He feels like he has been weighed down by heavy chains. And then verse 8 is a truly terrible verse. Because Jeremiah says that although he calls, although he cries, although he shouts for help, it seems like God has completely shut out his prayers. And instead he finds his path, the course of his life, blocked, barred by blocks of stone. The paths, the roads of his life, they're crooked and unclear. He doesn't know what to do even though he's asking for help. And sometimes when we're in moments of deep despair, it feels like heaven is silent. And we're impatient creatures. We can become frustrated when God doesn't seem to answer us right away. Sometimes God seems very quick to respond to our prayer, but other times it seems like it takes forever. And many of God's people have experienced seasons like this. In Psalm 22, 2, David says, Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. And it can be very discouraging to feel like God doesn't care about us. It did for Jeremiah. In verse 10, he compares God to a bear or a lion that's lying in wait to attack him. Now again, in the 21st century here in America, we don't worry very often about animal attacks like that. But in ancient Israel, that was a very real danger. And like those animals would do, Jeremiah feels that God has turned him aside and dragged him down. He feels that his soul has been torn and mangled to pieces. He says he's been made desolate, hopeless, hopeless, devastated by the destruction of his people, of his city, and of his home. And take a second to imagine what he's going through here. Imagine if the only home you had ever known was destroyed. 
Imagine if your country in one day ceased to exist. It would be absolutely devastating to go through that. That's why Jeremiah compares God to an archer that bends and draws his bow to shoot at him where it would hurt most. All people seem to laugh and taunt him with mocking songs. When a believer suffers, it's often a lonely and very isolating experience. Jeremiah felt alone. He said his life is filled with bitterness, the poisonous wormwood of sorrow. In the last few verses of this part, in verse 16, he wraps up by comparing his pain to grinding or chewing on gravel and being covered with ashes and dust. He is bereft and deprived of any feeling of peace. He says in verse 17 that he's even forgotten what happiness and prosperity even is. His endurance, his splendor, his strength has perished, and he feels like he's lost all his hope in the Lord. Now, when we look at these, these are very hard verses to read, and I know that, but they reveal the mindset of someone who has been broken by the difficulties of life and who's been broken by the pain of God's judgment against sin. Now, maybe you see this, and this seems a little extreme to you. You're like, this Jeremiah guy, he's a little overdramatic. And perhaps he's going a bit too far with some of his comments. But maybe these words ring true for you at this time in your life. Maybe you do feel alone. Maybe you do feel betrayed or abandoned by everyone, including God. You may try to turn things around, but nothing seems to help. You feel lost. It doesn't seem like God is answering your prayers. And if you feel that way, well, friend, you are not alone. These words here relate to the experiences of generations of believers. Maybe you are not here, you're not feeling like this right now, but maybe you have at some point in your life. Maybe you're just coming out of a period of great struggle, or you remember one from a few years ago. If you've never felt like how Jeremiah is talking here, well, live long enough, and someday probably you will. But if you have, or you are feeling like God is against you, again, you are in good company because one of the most beautiful things about the Bible is how true it is to real life, to life in this very real and very broken world. The pain, the hurt, the brokenness, it's not glossed over. It's not ignored. The message of the Bible isn't smile and be happy in spite of the pain. No, this pain, this brokenness, it's explored in the Bible. It's considered. People wrestle with how hard life is. In our text, Jeremiah is mourning the pain that God has brought into his life and into the lives of his brothers and sisters. But again, this is not the only time we see something like this. Probably an example we go to a lot is the Old Testament hero Job. He had a very similar experience. He lost his wealth, he lost his possessions, and he lost his children all in one day. And then after that, his health started to fail too. Now, if we read it, we know that God gave Satan permission to take all these things from Job. And even though Job doesn't know that, he still, still realizes everything that happens to him is coming through the one true God. And so here are some things that Job, this man we lift up, this is what he says about God. He says, behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. He has kindled his wrath against me, counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around 
my tent. Well, that language there, that's very similar to what we just read in the book of Lamentations. God is not answering his prayers. The Lord is darkening his life. He seemed to surround him, attack him like an enemy army. Now, if we know the book of Job, we know that eventually God would reveal himself to Job in a very new and a very powerful way. But we should not rush through the story to get there. If you ever spend time in Job, it's a very long book. And the vast majority of it is full of Job and his friends. They're trying desperately to understand what God is doing in Job's life. And so the point is that like Jeremiah, Job struggled to see what God was doing in his time of suffering. And you know what? That's, that's okay. It's okay to struggle with seeing what God is doing in our lives. Because life is full of tension and confusion. And people have experienced it since the very first sin. We could go to many other examples of people besides Jeremiah and Job who have felt abandoned by God. But there's one example that I think is the most important one to go to. Most importantly, Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, he felt like that. When Jesus was on the cross, he experienced the fullness of God's wrath against sin. And in Matthew 27, 46, we read that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And he translates, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou, why have you forsaken me? Like Jeremiah in our text, Jesus felt abandoned by God. Now the difference is that Jeremiah and his people were not actually abandoned by the Lord, but in this moment, Jesus was. He was cut off in our place. He paid the penalty for our sin so that we could be restored to a right relationship with the Lord. Why is that important? Well, on the one hand, it shows us the great lengths that Jesus went to provide the way for salvation. If you're not a Christian, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can know him because of what he did. Your sin earns you God's judgment, like our passage we read talked about, but much worse than that. But if you turn away from your rebellion, if you place your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, then you can know him and your relationship with God can be restored. There is hope for you. On the other hand, Christians can also take hope from those who feel like they were abandoned by God. Because if you've ever felt like God is against you, well, you can take comfort from the fact. You share that feeling with great heroes of the faith, like Jeremiah, like Job, and yes, like Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So even though you may feel alone, you are not. What's happening to you is not unique. It's an experience shared by many who have a relationship with the Lord. So do not be afraid to share with others. Tell other people what you are thinking and feeling because other Christians have probably experienced the same. Be encouraged in your shared struggles. And when the time comes, use your experience of suffering to bless and encourage others. But let's go back to Lamentations here. Just reading through it, what is this passage, all these complainings that Jeremiah is doing, what does that have to do with us today? How do we make any sense of what's happening to Jeremiah. Well, if we jump ahead to the last couple of verses we read, 31 through 33, 
we see that the grief God brings on his children does not last forever. Verse 31 says, The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart. His compassion and his mercy and his steadfast love always shine through. Remember why Jeremiah is going through all these things. God's people had stopped worshiping him, and this was how God called them back to him. What we're looking at here is God's discipline, his discipline. Hebrews 12 verse 6 teaches us that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises, he corrects every son whom he receives. I thought this designer did an interesting thing with this arrow. When we go astray, God brings us back. He disciplines those that he loves. The author in Hebrews then goes on to compare God's discipline to what happened to many of us, the discipline many of us received from our earthly fathers. He says this, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, God, he disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God disciplines his children. He does whatever it takes to make them like his son, Jesus Christ. It's for our good. His discipline is for our good so that we may grow in godliness and holiness. Now, it might be painful when it's happening, but the end result of his discipline is glorious. It's a call to trust God, to trust his process in the midst of our suffering. Now, I am not saying that in every case your suffering is the result of your sin. I'm not saying that. It was for the Israelites here. It might not be for you. Remember who's talking here. It's Jeremiah. Jeremiah himself was not the one who sinned. He's the one who told the people to stop sinning, yet he's still experiencing this as well. So your suffering could be the result of a sin you need to turn away from. But if it is a sin, you're probably aware of it. On the other hand, your pain could be God's way of calling you to deeper faith and deeper trust in Him. So if God is disciplining us or if we're going through a severe trial, what do we do? Well, when it feels like God is against us, we should remember His great faithfulness. We should remember His great faithfulness. When Jeremiah is at the bottom of his despair, he finds there's nowhere else for him to go but up. One commentator on this passage, Stephen Smith, he described what's happening in the second half of the passage, starting in verse 19. He says, Jeremiah awakes to the thought that he is not in a black hole. He is in a black night that reminds him of the coming light. It's not that his light and his hope is lost forever. He's not in a black hole that's completely sucked it all away. Jeremiah realizes that his hope is gone simply because it's the night and it's not yet the morning. When he remembers his roaming and wandering feeling of his suffering and affliction, his bitterness and gall, even in that, there's something that he can cling to. And though he will never forget his suffering, he says his soul is bowed down and downcast in verse 20, he still has hope. And why? 
because of what we read in verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, or because of God's great love, we are not consumed. For his mercies, his compassions never fail. They never come to the end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The steadfast, great, and faithful love of the Lord never ceases. It never comes to an end. His people are never ultimately consumed. Because Jeremiah has a relationship with God, the Lord's mercies and compassions are new to him every morning. He trusts in God's great faithfulness. These two verses are the key to this text. Our hope in hard times comes from trusting in God's great faithfulness. And there's other authors in Scripture who saw this truth. Again, King David in Psalm 36.5 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. It keeps going and going. And every morning we see new evidence of God's love and mercy if we're willing to look for it. The British pastor Charles Spurgeon, he had a really beautiful way of describing this. He says, God is not the cistern. God's not the bowl that we put our water in. He's the fountain. Our treasures that we lay up on earth, they're the stagnant pools. But the treasures which God gives us from heaven, the treasures that come from his providence and grace, those are the crystal fountain which wells up from the eternal deeps and is always fresh and always new. God always has more of himself and more of his grace and truth to give us. We will never run out of things to learn about him. We will never run out of trust to be gained in the Lord. The solution to darkness in our lives is to know the Lord better because that is where we find hope. Knowing him better is always the answer. Right before I got to preach, we sang a very well-known hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. So look at the first verse of this song in its chorus again. It says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. And here, from our text, morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. The author of that hymn is saying what Jeremiah is. God does not change. His compassions do not fail. Every morning we see more of his mercies. We have our eternal needs provided. And I think it's amazing that this song that's so popular, well-known, so encouraging, it comes from such a dark passage of Scripture. Jeremiah is at the absolute worst place in his life, yet these are the words that he turns to. May we turn to them as well. May we trust in his great faithfulness. Now, the rest of the passage that we read builds on the beauty of God's great faithfulness towards people. In verse 24, Jeremiah says, The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my inheritance. And therefore, he will trust, he will hope, he will wait on him. A psalmist named Asaph, he wrote this in Psalm 73, My flesh 
and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. And this is a really interesting point because both Jeremiah and Asaph, they're saying that, they're not saying God gave them their portion. They're not saying God gave them good things. They're not viewing their land or their food, their survival, the blessings they have in life. That's not what they need. No, what they need, their daily portion is the Lord himself. Again, verse 24, he says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. And do we think about God that way? Do we love him for what he gives us or do we love him for himself, for who he is? He should be our satisfaction and our source of joy. If God is our portion, then we learn to trust him. Verses 25 and 26 tells the Lord is good to those who wait for him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. He cares for those who hope on him, who depend on him. He cares for those who seek and search for him. And therefore, it is a good thing to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, when it says wait, it doesn't mean we sit back, we twiddle our thumbs, we wait for God to do something in our lives. Jeremiah is calling us to faithfully serve God, to desire to know Him, to seek to do His will. We are to pursue God, trusting, waiting for Him to act on our behalf. In other words, we're living our lives every day, trusting in God. Psalm 135 and 6 has a beautiful way of putting it. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. It says, more than watchmen for the morning. And for more emphasis, more than watchmen for the morning. The psalmist is trusting in God's word, longing to see more of the Lord. He's not being lazy. He is actively trusting in God. He takes more joy in seeing God work than a night watchman does when his shift ends at dawn. Trust in God is his joy. And the last few verses unpack what this looks like, what it looks like to have this joy, to trust in God, to trust his great faithfulness in hard times. According to verse 27, when God brings the yoke of discipline into our lives, we should bear it and submit to it. He says, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. In other words, it's a good thing to suffer for God early in life, because it helps us to serve him as we grow old. Now, in our selfishness, we may find that that's really unfair because our life is not as great as the people around us. Why is this happening to me, God, and not to him? Why does she get that and I don't? But the truth is that God's discipline, his work in your life is a blessing. You will know him much better on the other side. It is good to bear the burden while you are young. It may be hard, but it will be worth it. Now, perhaps you're already up there in years, and you're like, well, this verse doesn't apply to me, Pastor John. Well, submitting to God's discipline is still a good thing because it prepares you to see Him. A life of comfort and ease on earth is very poor preparation for eternity. So when the Lord's discipline comes, Jeremiah says we should respond with silence, rather than complaining. And if we need to, we should repent or turn from sin. 
Verse 29 uses the ancient custom of dust and ashes to express a sorrowful turning away from sin. And that's exactly what Job did in his book. When he realized that he should not have questioned God, he says, therefore I despise myself. I turn away from what I said and I repent in dust and ashes. Now again, I am not saying that our suffering is always caused by our sin, but when it is caused by our sin, we should be quick to repent, quick to turn from it. We should not fight against what God is doing in our lives. We should turn our other cheek to the one who strikes, accept insults, disgrace, and reproach. That's what he says in verse 30, and Jesus picks up on that instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 39, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, that verse does not mean that we should never seek justice, and it absolutely does not mean that someone should stay in an abusive situation, not at all. But what it does mean is that we should consider what God is doing in our trials. We should think about how our suffering helps us to know him better. Now, we've already talked a bit about the last three verses. Again, they remind us that God does not cast us off forever. He does not cast off those who know him. He may bring grief into their lives, but he has compassion according to his abundance and multitude of his great love. God's love is steadfast. It is unfailing. And his mercy keeps him from afflicting and hurting his children or causing them permanent grief and sorrow. The very last few verses here, they have a lot in common with Psalm 103. Look at verses 8 and 9 of that psalm. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the same word we saw, that he's abundance of his steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. When sorrow comes into the life of a Christian, it has a purpose. That's what Jeremiah came to realize, and that's what he wants us to realize as well. Because it's often in seasons of darkness that we learn to truly appreciate God's light. This author's journey from depression to hope in this passage, it actually reminded me of a quote from one of my favorite films. In The Lord of the Rings, this is The Two Towers, a hobbit Frodo is on a journey with his gardener, his friend Sam. They're on a journey to destroy an evil ring of power. And after a particularly close escape, Sam comforts his friend with a very memorable speech. This is what he says, By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. In his eyes, Sam thought that his situation was unjust, but he knew that a new day would come because their story mattered. 
And while using different words, that's the same theme that our passage said. Jeremiah felt his situation was unfair. He spends 18 verses complaining about it. But he trusted in God's great faithfulness and mercy. And he trusted that God's faithfulness would be new in the morning, in a greater and an even better way. He trusted in God, his portion. He was willing to wait for God to act for his behalf. He was going to wait for God to reveal his eternal purpose in his life. And I don't know the full extent of God's purposes in Jeremiah, but at the very least, God used Jeremiah's pain to give us this book, this book of Lamentations, which has been such an encouragement to many today and throughout the ages. So friends, I don't know every single specific situation in this room. I don't know the details of what's going on in each and every one of your lives. Maybe you're feeling good. Maybe you're really enjoying this holiday season, but maybe you're not. Maybe what Jeremiah said in that first half of the passage, maybe that really resonates with you this year. Perhaps the shorter days of the coming winter make you feel like you're always in the dark. You go to work in the dark, you come home in the dark, you're physically and emotionally in darkness. But brothers and sisters, your darkness does not mean that you are stuck in a hole. It means that you are in the night, and the night ends at dawn. Scholar Stephen Smith, again, he put it this way, the hard utilitarian mechanism of the earth's rotation, he just means sunrise and sunset, that reflects this sweet sequence of his, of God's presence. What is that sequence? What does day and night mean? It means dark before light, always. So picture up in the sky where the dawn's coming in a morning. I was actually thinking uh, this morning about a flight I took in October of last year. It was a very early one, and as we were flying, we were heading west, and it felt like the sun was chasing us as it was coming up. More and more of the light got brighter, even though as we were flying away from it. Dark before light, always. The fact that we are in nighttime, it means that the daytime will come again. Now, we may not like the darkness, but we can view it as a blessing if it reminds us of the light. So I cannot tell you when your specific trial, when your struggle will end. I don't know that. But I can tell you that if you know God, then your trial has a purpose, and that purpose will be accomplished. Earlier this year, we studied Romans chapter 8, and we talked about how important it is to tie the most famous verse in that chapter to the one that comes after it. So Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those called according to his purpose, those who know God or are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. But what is this good? The next verse tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, to be molded, to be shaped, to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn, the preeminent among many brothers. If you are a believer in Jesus, then everything in your life has a good purpose because it conforms, it molds you, it shapes you into the image of Jesus Christ. Everything that happens in your life makes you more like him. So when it feels like God is against you, trust in his great faithfulness. Trust in his compassion and mercy that is new every morning. 
However, if you're here, you do not have a relationship with Jesus, then you do not have this hope. But it can be yours if you turn from sin, if you trust in him, you can have this hope too. So please ask me about it. Talk to me about it. Talk to someone you know is a Christian. Talk to them about how you can trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from sin, believe in him, and come to faith in Christ and have this hope every day. But if you do know him, then this morning, this Christmas, whether your heart feels heavy or light, praise the Lord. I encourage you to use this time of response to praise the great faithfulness of our Lord and Savior, because he alone is worthy.